All right, we are back with episode 13, Stap Cells and Blogging. I am Dr. Christopher Fasano. He is Dr. Yosef Gannett, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. Yos, we got that right this time, man. What's going on? Yeah, man. Uh, you should uh, explain that title there. That's a quite the intriguing title, uh, Stap yeah, Cells. Yeah, so Stap Cells and Blogging. So Stap Cells, we talked about it last time. It was that, that crazy new stem cell discovery where you can take you know, some sort of somatic cell, lymphoid cell, skin cell, dip it in a little acid or a little low pH, and boom, you get pluripotent cells. Well, that's turned into a little bit of a firestorm in the field, and there's a lot of controversy surrounding that. So we're going to talk about that. And the blogging aspect is we got our guest today, Dr. Paul Knopfler, who is really the blog, the voice of stem cell research, and he's been heavy on stem cells on his blog, and he, like he should be. So we're going to marry the two in the title, and we're going to get into them both. But uh, before we get into the show, let's just do our little quick minute of business here. Um, first thing is the Stem Cell Podcast is happy to announce that we will now have a website. It should be live uh, when this episode airs. So you'll be able to go to www.stemcellpodcast.com. Um, we're going to have uh, all of the episodes up there. With the snippets, you'll have the little headshots of our guests. You can find information about me and Yosef, where we're going. If we're going to conferences and such, we'll let you know where we're going to be. Um, we're also going to do some things down the road where all the papers we talk about, or at least the highlights, we're going to pull highlights from papers with the titles so that all of you out there are going to get go to the website and if, basically like the cliff notes for your stem cell papers. You can just go. If you liked an article... You can find a little snippet and click the link. It'll take you right there. So we're going to try to make a nice little resource for everyone out there, yo. So that's going to be really awesome. It looks really nice. We saw a little snippet of it today. Yeah, I really enjoyed the preview. I'm, it's, it's exciting. So um, yeah, I look check forward it out, to that everybody. going on. Um, let's see here. Oh, and uh, the registration again, open nextgenstemcell.com for the meeting in Saratoga. Please come and join us. Uh, use podcast. You guys get a, a discount on the registration. That's going to be in Saratoga. Saratoga, beautiful New York. Yo, so we're going to get some fried chicken again at Hattie's. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I love that town. It's a beautiful mm -hmm. town. Beautiful town. Beautiful town. It's a great conference. Very relaxed. Everybody opened the early bird registration. You get $100 uh, cheaper than the regular registration that closes in a few weeks. So everybody out there, uh, come. It'll be fun. Even if you're really not uh, a scientist in the field, come and hang out, meet the scientists, learn the science, and, and drink with us. It's a, it's a really good time. So... I, that's really all I'm going to say. Let's uh, let's jump into it, Yos. Let's kick that science off. You uh, yes. give it some there. Let's see what you got. Yeah. So for the science round off, we'll start off with a nice cell stem cell study uh, showing that blood platelets can be formed from IPSCs. Did you see that? I did. Very yeah. cool. Yeah. They uh, took some um, pluripotent stem cell derived hematopoietic progenitors. Remember those megakaryocytes that we talked about last time with Daylon? Mm -hmm. Yes, they made some of those progenitor cells, and uh, they did it uh, through the overexpression of BMI1 and BCL, XL, and uh, some C-MIC in there. So, uh, a little yeah. MIC action? Yeah, some more MIC. And, um, yeah. You need platelets, man. Platelets are very important. Yeah, and it, especially for clinicians, they need it all the time, and they need it fresh, and uh, yep. because it can't be stored at least from humans, but this can be cryopreserved and expanded. 
So uh, that's a home run. Yeah, some nice uh, long term story. Do you know so, who that was? Do you know who that was by Yost? Do you know any of the authors? No, yeah, no, I don't offhand. All right, well, we can get it, and now we'll be able to put it up on our website. See, there you go. Yes, like, there you go. Nice bringing that together. Uh, Nature neuroscience study uh, showing that and en- the endocannabinoid system. Uh, the, you know uh, what THC works on. Um, there's actually endogenous. Uh, system going on there and it turns out surprise surprise uh it controls food intake uh yeah so uh this study showed that um the olfactory it's the cb receptors uh cannabinoid uh whatever cb one yes is the receptor that is uh increases odor detection in fasted mice and so uh, they did some cool study with some optogenetics, really nailed it down that the CB receptor enhances basically smell detection in the mice and made them want to eat more. It induced appetite. So um, that was... Munchies. A, yeah, basically. And uh, that's, yeah, I guess it makes sense. So, um, it makes sense. Yeah. You know, I it just amazes me how much that system controls that we had no idea about until recently. Like the science didn't come online until sort of while we were studying it, you know, 90s, 2000s. I I don't think a lot of people out there understand that the endocannabinoid field is a real field. I mean, it's a it's a field of research in neuroscience. (laughs) People hear of marijuana, you know, and stuff. No, just like also. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, it just seems it's got a taint of silliness to it, but it's really expansive, the system. It's like almost as big as acetylcholine in the brain. Yeah. it's it's It controls a lot of stuff. It's amazing. So um, it's kind of fun to watch it uh, come online as a new field. It's sort of like stem cells in that sense, but uh, more of a, I don't know, it gets more ridicule. Um at least as a joke, I guess. Um, so another uh, neuroscience study, uh, this was actually a little controversial. Uh, this was in Neuroscience and Biobehavioral Reviews. It was a metal, meta-analysis uh, showing that men have larger brain volume than women. And this mm-hmm. was between 8 and 13%. Now, before, you know, this gets any controversial. There were other regions that were bigger in women versus men and, and in men versus women, but on average, uh, men had a larger volume. Now, what that volume is full of, you know, could be <laughs> up to you, but uh, the, that uh, in terms of volume, it was larger. So um, you could Women probably... might say that that is just full of empty space. Exactly. Probably. Hot air. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, nature communication study uh, identifying a secondary function for lactate. Uh, this was produced by astrocytes in the brain, uh, whereby it stimulates norepinephrine production or adrenaline, as we know it here, um, through an unknown receptor. So that's pretty interesting. Uh, lactate. Wow, and, that and, is yeah. uh, that's that's pretty cool, man. Pretty cool. Yeah. So um, lactate. It's not only usually it's a uh, released just by muscle cells, you know, lactic acid when you're like working out. Uh, I don't know. You work out more than I do in the gym. So lactic acid sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, there was a journal of chromatography study showing that a gene known as ABCC11 is related to both underarm odor. And if you have wet or dry, dry earwax, 
depending on your ethnicity. What? Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was oh, interesting, man. man. That like a gene can be responsible for both yucky things. <laughs> um, have you seen that sea stars have been dissolving on the West Coast? I know. Yeah, they've been dissolving and detaching. It's some weird wasting syndrome where their limbs separate from them and crawl away and disembowel the uh, sea stars. So they don't really know what's ca what causes it, but it's happened before. But this is like a recent outbreak, and it's oh, yeah, it's in that's not good. Yeah, on the in like Washington State. So. uh Complete mystery there, not really a study. Um, there was a nature study showing that uh, identifying the oldest known star. This thing is 6,000 light years away from Earth, and it's uh, believed to be 13.7 billion years old, so right around the time when the universe was forming. So for the first 6, time. 6,000 light years away. It's pretty far, right? Yeah, it's a long yeah. trip. That's a real. Yeah, it's a long trip. A long trip. Um, yeah. So that's some people think the Earth is six thousand years old. So that's how long it would take to get to the star. Yeah, I know. P.S. By the way, did you see that debate between Bill Nye, the science guy, and John? Is it John Hamm, the creationist guy? Yeah, I, I, I saw some clips. I didn't see the whole thing. It was it's pretty wild. Everyone, if you if you haven't heard about, it, check this out. It's pretty interesting. They debate. If uh, creationism is a viable uh, kind of theory for one, how one of my about. one of my favorite clips though is the whole ice core things because like you know trees and ice cores uh, but ice cores more than anything it's it's like come on the Earth is not six thousand years old we I know. have I know. We, we drill he, into ice and we just measure the rings. Every exactly. Year. exactly. He was on Bill Maher, and he's like, well, we can go outside right now and find a couple of trees that are older than 6,000 years old. Yeah, so. some, of those, some of those ice cores go back like 300,000 years. So, uh, uh, Any, Sorry, digress. Go ahead. Uh, anyhow, uh, nature medicine study showing that uh, CD4 positive, CCR5 positive, these are newly identified memory T cell, uh, stem cell, sorry, memory T cell stem cell. And uh, these are sort of like the banks for HIV because they persist longer in these cells and because they last longer. And um, major finding in nature medicine showing wow. that, yeah, HIV kind of likes to stick to these cells as a reservoir. Uh, and I, I didn't know that this was a new newly identified cell. Uh, so CD4 positive CCR5 memory T cell stem cells. So um, all sorts of stem cells out there, depending mm. on the niche. Um, what's our favorite journal? PNAS. PNAS study showing that's the proceedings for National Academy of Sciences study showing that genes from the Black uh, Death, you know, the Black Death Plague in yeah, the 14th, man. that happened in the 14th century. It just wiped out a lot of Europeans. And uh, they did this study showing a positive selection for genes, about 20 genes from the, the uh, basically the survivors of it. They compared a bunch of gypsies and Romanians to Indians that were not uh, really affected by the Black Plague. Uh, Black Death Plague. And uh, they found a bunch of TLR genes were enhanced, you know, those toll-like receptors yep, yep. when those immune cell genes were uh, selected for. 
numbers. So uh, kind of interesting, you know, mark on the genome of those people, um, the survivors of the Black Death Plague. Kind of yeah, like it. it that's rem- crazy. Yeah, I know. That whole period reminds me of like you know Game of Thrones. You know, it does, man. I would have loved to been around there, but not really. But like, <laughs> if I could just like go in and check that out, what maybe, is that like? Maybe for a day, yeah, and just see like a Shakespearean play when it was actually fresh. Yeah, you know, that'd be so awesome. Yeah, just that'd be, that'd be amazing. Yeah. So, um, P- uh, uh, there was a study in Pure J. I never heard this journal, Pure but J. yeah, I don't know if this is a like I, Juicy J, the but, rapper Pure J. Yeah, kind of like Juicy J, but for journals, and um, <laughs> it was uh, showing that elephants. It was the first study to really nail down that elephants show empathy for other elephants. Um, they used some Thai, ele- some elephants in Thailand, where they basically went up to a brother and gave him a hug. They were like, "Don't feel bad, man." in Aww. an elephant way so showing some empathy there which is a you know rare trait in nature it's like us and not many other uh you know forms of empathy out there so um, so we're like elephants possibly uh, it's a good thing to have empathy otherwise we'd be a bunch of sociopaths running around true um there was a science paper study uh it was a study showing that Bumetanide, and it's this drug that works on uh, basically it's a diuretic that can affect uh, GABA and uh, oxytocin media- mediated uh, GABA inhibition during uh, j- uh, the delivery period in both um, fragile X rodent models of uh, autism and valproate treated models of autism can Hmm. essentially provide therapy. So by blocking oxytocin uh, increases chloride uh, ions and leads to autism on the flip side. So it's kind of like, you know, a new treat. Well, we always knew that like oxytocin was sort of like that, you know, uh, bonding hormone. How, how would you, you know, it's sort of like this and it's like the social kind of, uh, bond. Yeah. Bonding hormone, social hormone. Yeah. And it's amazing. This, uh, how they were able to a model it in mice and deliver bumetanide and, uh, to these mice and oxytocin actually helped the mice as well. Uh, during, it was during the birth, you know, the young birth stage of the mice and, uh, they were able to show, a amelioration of, uh, the autism like syndrome, uh, symptoms. So that you can find that in science magazine. Um, and I think that is it for me. Oh, wait, one more study here. Uh, Victorio Gallo's, uh, lab. Yeah. He's a, good you old know, Victorio yeah, Gallo. I like, I like Victorio. Yeah. Uh, in Neuron, he published that ET1 uh, is a molecule that can inhibit repair of myelin. And uh, by blocking ET1, you could promote uh, myelin generation. So uh, you can find that in Neuron. So I learned a lot from Vittorio Gallo when I was a grad student studying NG2-positive uh, oligodendrocyte precursors and things like that. So that's cool. Neuron, nice. Good job. Nice. Yeah, very, I've, very nice. I've met him before. He's a really nice guy. And just really quick, I just want to ask you, I, did you see that study in cell stem cell on uh, the differences between the NIH regulations and the FDA regulations for the use of hu- human embryonic stem cells? 
You know, I I didn't read it, but I saw it. I did not read. Did you read yeah, it? They, I I saw like a, I read a, over a review of it, and it said that up to a quarter, you could spend up to a quarter million dollars just like testing for diseases to make sure that uh, not only the line that's just for the line, but you also have to test the donors now too. And it's like. Wow, I mean, and then there's differences between the NIH regulations and the FDA regulations. But you know what? H1 made it through. You know, the H1 line, it made it through via Geron. So uh, that's good. That's good. So there are exceptions Uh uh, to this. Uncharted uh, waters, man. This is the stuff, yep. Yeah, disease screening. But uh, it's worth a read over in the February issue of uh, Cell Stem Cell. I think it's the 9th or... uh, the following week so uh, that's cool i had i saw it i did not read it so thank you for bringing that to my attention i will go back and check that out okay anything uh, so on that's your, it for you that, man that's yeah that's it for me thank that's you, the sir. end of the science roundup let's uh let's see what i got here well let me just start with this so i will start with this stap cell poop storm that's going on right now everybody out there we you know we talked about it um we talked about it last time. There was this really cool finding um, published in Nature. There's a couple papers. Uh, it was Charles Vacanti and then this Japanese guy. Gioso, do you remember the name? No, it's a woman. Uh, Okubo. Woman, sorry. Sorry. Yes, yes. Exactly. That's why I didn't even try. <laughs> so, so, so really, we talked about it in the intro. The premise was you, they call it STAP, stimulus-triggered acquisition of pluripotency. It's a stress on a cell can kick it into pluripotency and it was it it was it was kind of a strange thing we talked about it like well that sounds strange but you know we brought that up we gave it the benefit of the doubt we said the proof will be in the pudding people are going to have to try to reproduce it well it's been a couple weeks now and apparently no one really can reproduce it um i think um i think it was about 10 10 labs or so that that we saw that, that, that i was reading tried they couldn't get it to work one of the one of the guys who was a senior author on the paper when he when now he's in another place in another lab, said that he's having trouble reproducing it where he isn't. That's never good. Um, but I'm I'm just going to leave it at that. I wanted to touch on it here. We're going to talk about it with uh, Paul Moffler coming up in a little bit uh, and get dive really into it, Yost, because this is just unraveling and the stock is plummeting, if you will, on this paper currently. So it's not looking too good here. Yeah, uh, and it's really a shame because we've been down this road before with stem cells, and uh, it's never good when something like this happens in the public and to to a high profile journal like that. So, um, yeah, it's never good to have stem cells on any negative light. And this thing made a national. Na- I mean, this was like coffee talk, you know. I mean, this was just everywhere. Good Morning America. So it's never good when something goes that public and then just 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 turns out to be just perceived negatively. I, I hope it makes it turn. I hope it makes a U-turn. It re, you know, redeems itself somewhere along the lines, but it's just not looking good. So we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, there was this uh, a paper published. It was very cool, Nature Medicine. Uh, this was out of uh, the lab of Helen Blau, Stanford University. Um, it's basically, uh, there was, uh, let's see here, uh, muscle, stem, muscle stem cells that can be rejuvenated in elderly mice. So, you know, like when you get old, your muscles just aren't what they were. You know, it's uh, very difficult for, to get muscle recovery when you're old. You talk to any athlete, they'll probably be able to tell you that, you know. What, so what they were able to do is they were able to uncover a mechanism as to 
why this may be, and it turns out to be that it's in the in the stem cells. So it's in the past, it's been thought that the muscle stem cells don't really change with age, and that you know, kind of a loss of function um, is primarily due to external factors in the cell's environment. Uh, but they uh, they isolated the stem cells from older mice in the muscle and found that they were profoundly different and they were actually able to identify it and then they would go on to somehow correct that. And then when they were able to transplant these elderly stem cells back, um, they were able to rejuvenate muscle. So it's really they were able to make muscle, old muscle, young again and it seems to be the stem cell that really is what the problem is. That's a nature medicine. Check it out. Um I want to touch on just a couple papers here that have a similar uh, uh, topic. One is out of the lab of Dr. Kevin Egan um, at, at Harvard, our buddy there, Kevin. A good uh, friend just, of ours. Justin Achita is also on that author line. What's up, Justin, out there at uh, USC? And so it's called Nanog Independent Reprogramming to IPSCs with Canonical Factors. Basically, you know, Nanog is in a, is in a, is basically, it's, it's been, it's been suggested that it's essential for the establishment of pluripotency during the derivation of ES cells and IPS cells. Um, and so what they did was they investigated whether Nanog is necessary for reprogramming mouse fibroblasts under the OCT4, SOX2, KLF4C MIC regime. And what they, what they found was that in these Nanog knockout fibroblasts, while it was the efficiency was lower, they were still able to generate IPSCs from these nanog knockout fire blasts, and they were able to contribute to the germline of chimeric mice. So they conclude that while it may, nanog may be an important mediator of a program, it is not required for establishing pluripotency in mouse and even under standard conditions. So I thought that was very very interesting because I always think you need nanog to get pluripotency. Yeah. Uh, similar to this, there's a, 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 a paper in. Uh, I think this is current biology, I believe, at a lab of Conrad, Conrad Hodelinger, uh, and also at the Harvard Stem Cell Institute, and the yeah. title is Nanog is Dispensable for the Generation of IPS Cells. So same idea here, that endogenous nanog is not required for induced pluripotency, uh, and he shows that you can overcome this uh, kind of... Uh, um, it's ascorbic acid will overcome reprogramming block of nanog deficient cells. So, so similar similar results. It's just and he talks about ascorbic acid kind of as a nanog uh, mimic, if you will, in in this context. So, it's just two papers, uh, same topic really, uh, and this is done in mouse. I should stress, not the human system. Um, let me run through the last two quickly here. This one is out of the lab of Gong Chen. It's called in vivo direct reprogramming of reactive glial cells into functional neurons after brain injury and in an Alzheimer's disease model. Pretty sure this was in stem cell reports. Um, so they were able to convert reactive glial cells into functioning neurons in vivo. You know, yeah, really I, saw, cool. I saw that paper. Really you did, awesome. yeah. So they were able to overexpress neuro D1. Yep. It induces a glial neuroconversion in this Alzheimer's model, and it can also reprogram NG2 cells to these glutamatergic and gammaergic neurons. They also showed that in human astrocytes can be converted into glutamatergic neurons with neuro D1, the idea being that they can go into the brain and possibly harness glia. Dude, what's up with that? It's like it's like neuro D is like uh, myo D. You know how myo works for to make muscle? I yeah, think, what's up yeah. with the D? Myo D, neuro yeah, D. I know it's just like you just add some neuro D and you're you're. That's a pretty cool study, man. 
I like really, that. Really, really awesome. It's I applicable like for like stroke research, brain repair, you know, in at, at the site of injury. So, um, yeah, because where it's at really is going to be activating it in situ. See, without without having, because once you take cells out, it's a whole other set of requirements for FDA and cell replacement. Whereas if you can do things right in vivo, it's a whole other story. So these guys show that you can convert one cell in the brain into a neural cell type yeah, which is which yeah, is pretty cool finding. yeah but can't you imagine now like having your own stem cell line re- ready to make you know whatever type of neuron you're missing during like for say a stroke and uh regenerate that portion of your i i think that that's more feasible now than i ever imagined it before me too I totally agree with that, and it's kind of wild to think. Yeah, and and you guys should check this paper out. And it it, it it's not fully there, but it 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 shows proof of principle that you can convert. It's like the Doug Melton story when they took the the cells and that they were able to make islets from that different cell in the pancreas. You know, they were just to reconvert the cell types. This is kind of what they did in the brain. That's really yeah, really cool. yeah. Because even there, you don't need your own stem cell line. You could take a little biopsy of tissue and make your own, you know, reparative cells in vitro and then place them back. And the, there's so much more we could do now with the genome. And it's I I just love it. It's so it's great. So check that out. I think it was in stem cell reports. Uh, and then lastly, I'm going to do this because. Because I'm just going to. This paper is uh, out of my lab, which was just recently published. Oh uh, man, I was I was going to shout you out in Cell Reports. I saw yeah, that. I'm I was, do it. Yeah, I'm no, do no, it. you should let me do it because it's like tooting your own horn. But you I want to do it? No, do it no, I was going to do it, but well, you I'm do it. Toot the horn of the of the first authors that did the work. So yes. I'm going to give them the credit because they really were the ones doing the work. So the name of the the name of the paper. Uh, is MPTX1, my, my good old friend MPTX1. MPTX1 is a critical regulator of neural, regulates neural lineage specification from human pluripotent stem cells. And the first authors are uh, Nathan Bowles and Sarah Hirsch. So what we found in this study is that, you know, as the, em- the embryo decides to choose a lineage, when it chooses to, to, to go down the road of nervous system, uh, we found that it turns on this gene, MPTX1, and it turns it on only for about uh, it peaks. It start, turns on at day day three of differentiation and turns right off. So it really turns on and gets really, really highly expressed for about a day and a half and then goes away. And that peak precedes the acquisition of neural characteristics. So we found that it's this early trigger for neural induction. And what you can do is you can take it you can overexpress it in ES cells, and that will drive them down the path of neurodifferentiation. And you can also knock it down. We've got rid of it a yeah, bunch of different I saw, ways. I saw a bunch of knockouts there. Yeah, you can just get rid of it or lower it. You can use different ways to, to block it, and that really inhibits or basically very much reduces the ability to differentiate into the lineage. And we found it works by uh, modulating TGF-beta and BMP signaling, which we know is very important. It's almost like a it's like a it's like a stabilizer. You get these transient extracellular blocks that go away. MPTX1 turns on. It maintains the block long enough to get lineage commitment, and then goes away. Uh, and so um, you know you can you can go on cell reports, check it out. Um, we did this uh, also in collaboration with a good buddy of mine, Paul Tazar, who I know listens to the podcast, uh, and I've been fighting to get him on the podcast for a while. So Paul. I'm calling you out in public here. You better come on the show and do an interview with us. Uh, congratulations to you, my friend, and uh, congratulations to my group. And uh, that's, uh, I think we'll wrap it up here. All right, Chris, so why don't you bring in our guest? 
All right. So uh, our guest uh, tonight uh, is Dr. Paul Knopfler. Uh, he is an associate professor at the Department of Cell Biology and Human Anatomy at the Genome Center and Comprehensive Cancer Center at the University of California Davis School of Medicine, where I'm sure it's a lot warmer than it currently is in Albany, New York. Um, Dr. Knopfler's research is focused on really um, you know, enhancing safety of stem cell treatments including that of the iPS cells we speak about a lot in the show, and developing novel ter- therapies to target cancer. Uh, we talked about that a little bit last episode with Sean Morrison, in particular uh, brain tumors. And uh, in addition to his research, uh, which is really where I, I got introduced uh, to Paul, is Dr. Knopfler really is arguably the most influential and well-known stem cell social media presence with his extremely active stem cell blog, I started, I believe, in 2009. I hope I got that right. I'll ask Paul to correct me if not in a minute. Uh, his blog can be found at www.ipscell.com, which is an amazing domain name to have, I must say. Um, the blog has, has really broken a number of cutting-edge stories in stem cell news and really just aims to keep the public, among scientists, up to date on all things stem cells. Uh, in addition to this blogging, in 2013, Paul released a book titled Stem Cells, an Insider's Guide, uh, which is aimed really at both the general audience of both scientists and non-scientists, which is very important. Uh, and as part of education advocacy efforts, uh, he has really, which is really cool, supplied some of his own money to support advancing the stem cell cause, uh, including a stem cell person of the year award that includes a $1,000 cash prize from his own money, which is obviously very generous. Uh, in 2013, he was named one of the 50 most influential people in the stem cell field, along with others such as Robert Lanza of ACT, and Nobel laureates Shinya Yamanaka and John Gurdon. That's some pretty pretty impressive company. So with that, uh, we will welcome to the show uh, Dr. Paul Knopfler. Welcome aboard, sir. How are you? I'm doing great. It's it's actually really sunny here. <laughs> thanks, thanks. That's that's great. <laughs> Sorry to rub it in. No, you can rub it in. It's fine. It's it's okay. We're this has been a brutal winter, but I'm hoping that we have a beautiful spring and a long summer, so uh, to make up for it. But um, Paul, let's let's get started. You know, when we have guests in, the first thing we want to do is put put the guest in perspective in the stem cell realm. So why don't you let everybody know um, how you got into the stem cell field and uh, what your lab does and your research is, and we kind of take it from there. Sure. So I actually started with a really strong interest in um, cancer, and, and that was based on work I did as a graduate student, and then also as a postdoc uh, up at the Hutch in Seattle, and that um, promoted cancer, and, and one in particular called MYC. And um, this is one of the most common oncogenes. And, and as a postdoc, I started uh, thinking about what MYC might do normally, and this really led me down the path to stem cells, because it turns out that MYC, like many of the oncogenes, they're not just you know solely bad guys. They sort of are like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and they do play important normal roles in stem cells. And so I started looking into that more and more, and, and that's really, um, <clears throat> that was a focus of my lab uh, at the beginning. We really wanted to understand how genes that cause cancer, you know, what are they up to uh, normally in stem cells? And that that's turned out to be a pretty... Uh, rich area of research that, that's been quite interesting and, and we found a number of other genes that are like MYC and having these dual roles that they they function normally in stem cells and then if we kind of throw a monkey wrench into the system, um, they can cause cancer. Um, we're also really interested in, in trying to help make stem cell-based therapies safer and, and especially uh, reduce the risk that they could cause tumors. 
which which is obviously a very important uh, thing. I mean, Yosef and I have spoke about this to to the audience, and I'm sure they're aware that you kind of have this dual-edged sword with stem cells, and that being their potential to generate so many different cell types is what makes them so amazing. But their really hallmark feature is that they can divide indefinitely and make more of themselves, and obviously that's a problem, right? So I think that's what you're talking about is trying to come up with ways where you don't necessarily, you know, where where, where that's really not going to cause a problem down the road, correct? Correct, yeah, And, and it really boils down or traces back to the fact that it's sort of hardwired in the stem cells to, to mediate growth. That's that's really what they're all about. They're um, depending on the type of stem cell, you know, they might be there to grow fat tissue or muscle tissue or, you know, replace some of the like three trillion blood cells that we each lose every few days. But um, you know, if if something goes a little bit wrong there, they can just keep on growing when they're not supposed to. So I'm curious, actually, just quickly, you know, you're talking about Mick and the concept and these, and what we would consider, I, I, I know I do it, Joseph, I don't know about you, I hear Mick, I think tumorigenic, I think cancer, and yeah. in, in the regular stem cell that's, that's dividing, maybe it's slow, what is it doing there, Mick? Is it, is it a, it's a cell cycle regulator, it's just controlling division rate, I mean, is that, is that kind of the idea? Um, it's really doing a lot of different things, and, and that's one of the challenges in studying MYC is it's a really pleiotropic factor. Um, it kind of jug- it's juggling a lot of balls, and so uh, it seems like in stem cells it has a number of of key functions that we kind of can focus in on, and and one of them is cell cycle. It really seems important for cells to keep growing. Um, it, it, it promotes entry into S phase, so cells will you know duplicate their DNA. Um, so it's, it's quite important in that respect. It also seems to kind of uh, juice up cells when it comes to their cellular metabolism. So this is something that is a little bit newer idea for MYC. Um, the cell cycle function has been around for a long time, but now we're realizing that MYC really talks to the metabolome in cells and, and keeps it uh, really going at a high rate so that cells can grow and divide. Um, MYC also seems to have a role in chromatin that's pretty interesting, and that's one of the the areas of focus of my lab, it seems to really keep chromatin in this open state that allows for many genes throughout the genome to be transcribed. Um, so it, it's really a factor that, that gets cells going, you know, gets them kind of excited, you know, if you want to uh, anthropomorphize cells. Um, and so uh, we know a lot about this because when we take MYC away, we can do what's called a, a knockout uh, of MYC. Um, cells sort of go into a quiescent state. Um, MYC also seems to uh, specifically inhibit the differentiation of stem cells, so it helps the stem cells maintain a stem-like state, because oftentimes stem cells, are, they sort of have this hair trigger. You know, they're, they're kind of like ready to go and differentiate if they're given just the right signal, and, and one of the key things about MYC is it seems to kind of prevent that from happening uh, prematurely. It's sort of like the anti, you know, P53. It's one of these, like, you know, initiators. Uh, it also loosens up the DNA, too. It's, it does so many roles. Right. And, like, it, doesn't it affect, like, the methylation status, like, uh, promoter regions? And just, it, it does a lot of stuff. It, yeah, it, it really talks to all kinds of different machinery in the cell, and, and it does seem to to open up chromatin and, and make it what we call a more permissive state. So 
Um, that's one of the ideas why it might uh, be such a great booster of cellular reprogramming. So, you know, practically you don't absolutely have to have MIC in there when you make iPS cells, but but realistically it makes the process like 100 or 200 times more efficient. And, and we think part of that could be cell cycle, but a lot of it could also be just opening up the chromatin, kind of laying the table for Opt4 and other factors to do uh, their jobs. Yeah, that's really interesting. I've always thought it to be, you know, just you hear that a lot. Make boosts possibly because it gets the cells cycling and gets them going. It's kind of uh, like valproic acid too, in that way that like loosens up the DNA just a little bit and you know initiates things. But anyhow, um, it's, let let's transition to your blog because I went to it. I've been on it the last few days, uh, especially with this stem cell controversy and. It it is amazing. It's an amazing read right now. Everybody should go check out your website because uh, the way this is playing out uh, really plays well on your you know you're documenting something in action that I've never really seen before. Yeah, you know when when the papers first came out, I I, I kind of got tipped off to them and and I started reading through them and I thought to myself, this is going to be a really big deal and you know I don't know how it's going to play out, but I really should, you know, uh, weigh in on this. And so um, I actually wrote up a draft review of one of the, the two uh, Obacata papers, um, the one that uh, I guess it's the actual article um, rather than the letter to nature. And and so I was kind of sitting there on my blog, you know, should I post this, should I not post this, because I knew, um, you know, that's going to really stir things up. And, and so I went ahead and posted it, and, and that, that post is just sort of... Uh, exploded and, and all around the world people have really been reading it a lot and and then you know it was about a week later that I kind of posted more of a commentary piece uh, you know kind of sarcastically comparing the process to pickling cucumbers and and that and there again I, I kind of knew you know I might be asking for a little bit of trouble um, <laughs> by by taking uh, such a skeptical such a skeptical and kind of humorous look at things but Again, it really resonated with people, and, 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 and it's just been amazing how many people have read those posts. I think, I mean, Paul, are, are we in just a different time and a different age where I, I feel like, you know, I'm young to the field, and I'm, you know, I, I started a lab, and my lab is three years old, you know, and, and I, I've been in the stem cell world about a decade or less, and, you know, I, I just feel that, you know, when there is just the slightest bit of whoa, you know, when like you know, Yosef and I joked. I think it was last episode or so. We we got texts from our friends that say, "Oh, you know, be careful not to your skin cells to fall into some diet coke. You can get fluoropotent cell." And so when 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 there's something that comes across as a bit wacky, you know, in, with this age of, of blogging and social media and all these things, it just seems like a microscope is just no pun intended. A microscope is just r- immediately put on, you know, and I and if it's just the way it's going to be, um, you know, is it just there's extra scrutiny because it's kind of it's so important, or is this just kind of the new age that we're in? Is that if there's something that's just a hint of of different or possibly controversial or pushing the edge, it's going to be scrutinized extra carefully? You, you just think that's where we're going right now in in the field of science? I do. I, I, I do see that trend um, really coming along and accelerating. And it seems especially true when we kind of get to these, um, you know, really high-impact papers that might show up in nature or cell science. 
um, that there, there's a whole cadre of, of people out there kind of ready to act as uh, post-publication reviewers slash, you know, Sherlock Holmes sleuths, you know, to, to take out their, you know, digital equivalent of, of, a, of a magnifying go over everything, you know, uh, really carefully and, and really dig into things. And I don't see that changing. I really think that's that's here to stay. And, and part of it, I think, is just, you know, a generation shift that people uh, in science are are getting, you know, the sense that they, they can really actually talk about and discuss and, and even perhaps criticize papers in the public domain after they come out in a way that just wasn't, you know, the case, say, five or ten years ago. And, and so I think that's that's something that's, you know, that again, it's, it's not going to go away. And, and so I think that's one element of it. But I think, you know, in this case, I think this is a really unique case, too, because the claims in, in these stat papers are, are really mind-bogglingly, you know, out there. They're really extreme. And so I think sort of the combination of this, this change in mentality in the field, you know, you combine that with some extraordinary claims, and, and it was sort of bound to, to lead to a really tumultuous situation. Well, uh, it's supposed to have, the process takes, what, 30 minutes, and they say give it two weeks, and it's been about two weeks, and uh, so far, it doesn't look good uh, in terms of, like, top scientists not being able to reproduce it, and nature starting an investigation. It, it's sort of like this thing's gathering momentum in a, in a I guess, a downward way, but um, it's, it's still, the jury's still out. Yeah, you know, I, I think we can't be really sure where this is going to lead, and, and I would say the jury's still out on this, but the trend certainly seems to be at the moment um, in the negative direction, and I think in part it's because um, Nature News actually came out, you know, with this piece by David Cernoski a few days ago that was actually pretty um, pretty in, uh, investigative in nature, um, uh, and, and Cernoski really, you know, it's clear they really uh, didn't pull their punches, even though these papers were published by the same overall publishing group. And and I think, you know, my sense when people saw, you know, their survey results were zero out of ten success. Huh. Uh, you know, that really shook people up. And then sort of the cherry on top was when Teru, you know, Wakayama said, um, and he's one of the senior authors on these papers, that, in his own lab, this technique is not working. Um, yeah, that's never good. Yeah, that that freaked people out, and and he's still saying, you know, it did work. You know, when he was under the the guidance of uh, Obakata, you know, it, it was working, and now it's not. And, and so I think there's this sense, you know, um, I think unfortunately at the beginning there was some hype there, and then Nature itself had a piece, you know, like easy path, acid bath, you know, provides easy paths to stem cells, and I think. It really raised expectations this was going to be sort of an easier version of, you know, easier, quicker, simpler version of iPS cells. And, you know, I think now three weeks in, if, if one thing is pretty clear, this is not going to be easy. You know, this is this is a pretty tricky technique if, if anyone's really going to get it to work. So we're, we're talking with Paul, uh, talking about staph cells. You can find that on his blog, www.ipscell.com. Paul, this brings up, this brings up just... And Yosef, this brings up really, maybe this is a philosophical thing. As a scientist or, or people out there, we are about reproducibility, right? That's what science should be. And 
this is this has been something we've Joseph and I have spoken about when I was in Lorenz's lab. There was a there was a a, a protocol on how to make oligodendrocytes. I'm not going to name the name of the investigator out in California, uh, but basically the, the protocol said that you can make 99% pure oligodendrocytes, and everyone I spoke to couldn't do that at all. It was very difficult. No one could reproduce it. And and when when people dug in, you got the answer of it's a very you know, well it's a very very tricky kind of ha- you know there's there's these little things that you have to learn and so is it is it really that no one can repeat it or is it just so unique if you will are there just these little little things maybe that aren't completely divulged or maybe that's just so unique to the lab that it's not necessarily that you can't reproduce it it's just that it's just not very universally reproducible and and i guess it, it's more of a semantic thing and how do you define reproducibility right so uh, but i would say if you if out of 10 people have tried and it doesn't work then i guess the answer is you just can't reproduce it but i guess where i'm going with it is you know is it not reproducible just because a lot of people can't do it but if that lab can then it can happen you understand what i'm trying to say i guess yeah i i think you know, I, I'm kind of on the same wavelength as you. I, I'm not so sure that we know at this moment that we can really say it's not reproducible just because, you know, let's let's expand it and say, you know, maybe even 20 labs haven't been able to do it. Um, it may well be reproducible, but it may be that, the, you know, there's just some really essential elements to the protocol that are not evident, say, in the method sections of these papers. You know, and, and indeed, the authors um, are going to come out with a methods paper. Um, but, you know, I, I think where we're kind of heading, the path we're on with the STAP stuff, and kind of the gestalt I'm getting from a lot of people is that there's sort of this sense, you know, let's assume for the moment that this is real, you know, and it will be ultimately reproduced somehow. Um, again, it's, it's going to be a really difficult uh, technique to get to work. There's going to be some idiosyncrasies to it. You know, maybe it's not very efficient. Um, and so what a lot of people are kind of boiling this all down to is, you know, why should we, why should we switch from iPSLs to STAP? You know, we know iPSLs. We've been studying them for seven years. Um, and so I think that's, that's where a lot of people are kind of heading with this is, you know, they're really comparing STAP to iPSLs as sort of, you know, the gold standard at this point for reprogramming. And so that's a, you know, that's a high hurdle for STAP to be compared to three weeks into their, you know, public existence. And so, you know, is it fair to compare them to iPSLs at this point? I don't, I don't know yet. They're still, they're still so new, but um, that seems to be sort of the, 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 the way that people are going right now is making that comparison. And I, I should also note, you know, iPSLs, um, you know, it's not like people could reproduce iPSLs in only a few weeks, but within a few months, you know, all, tons of labs have made it work. And, and so I think what people are feeling is that they're, they're kind of skeptical that in a couple of months we're going to be that way with stop cells. Well, I, I mean, the other thing, too, that's just about this, again, that keep, is the, are, these, are these duplicated images that we're hearing. Yeah. I mean, this is not, I mean, now, I, this is not the first time I've heard this. This is many papers high profile. I forget that. This I'm happened with the, the Wu-Suck Wang paper, the science, the, the yeah. we haven't seen a good stem cell paper in science since because uh, the fake human cloning paper, and it started with duplicate images and and 
uh, I, I think it started with David Scadden first backing out and then the duplicate images and now that's happening here I, I, I don't know this uh, is yeah I mean they have evidence of these duplicated images this this whole thing in Italy that went down where these people are taking images from somewhere else and putting it on I mean I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm my naive even saying this has been going this goes on all the time it's just now the technology and they have these groups of people that are actually looking for this but it just I just feel like I hear about this more and more, and and I I, I want to think that it's that it's just a mistake and there's nothing wrong here. But this is this is not now the first and second or third time I'm hearing this. I mean, this is something that I, that keeps popping up. Yeah, I think it's a pretty serious issue here with Snap, and you know, my hope is that that there's not a lot of duplication in papers out there. You know, in terms of you know something in Figure One also being in Figure Two but rotated 90 degrees or whatever. You know, I hope. You know, there's sort of a you know old-fashioned scientist in me that hopes that that most science is is not containing those kinds of duplications. Um, certainly, technology is playing a role because it's it's a lot easier, I think, for people to look for duplications in a digital kind of context. But um, uh, you know, definitely with these with these stat papers, I think the duplication of the placenta. Uh, uh, which uh, Wakayama has now kind of taken responsibility for and acknowledged as real. You know, it's a real duplication. Um, I think that that's been really troubling to people. And I saw Jean Loring quoted in the Wall Street Journal that you know she says something along the lines, you know, if that happened, then why should I trust anything in this paper? And, and you know, that's a pretty intense, pretty scathing comment. But that that kind of reflects what a lot of people believe. Um, uh, what, and, what, 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 what do you think sorry, about what do you think about nature's role in this with the you know not releasing the geo data online and the, the the you know details in the methods even if 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 you're going to publish something this big uh, and you know game changing there should be a little bit more details or reproducibility in the methods uh, details uh, to, for people to reproduce it, I, and people are having troubles with just the methods and stuff. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, about that? yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I I think nature has definitely some responsibility here, and um, my sense is probably you know this was as, as best as we can understand. This is something that these authors have been pitching to nature for years, and and maybe you know kind of finally got to a, where they had kind of been over nature that this this might be something real and you know worth publishing but um you know somehow at the end game maybe things went too fast and you know the duplicated image wasn't caught and the you know the lack of database deposition of the data wasn't noticed and um you know the methods you know perhaps were not as detailed as should have been and and so you know there's that sometimes um you know in the publishing context Things go too fast, and I think that's what we saw with the Metalopov Labs, you know, paper and cell. You know, there are definitely a lot of duplications there, and and other uh, potential issues with the images. And you know, it just, you know, in that case, I think the review period was three days or something like that. So that was that was a pretty crazy situation. But is there as here, mu- is there as much question with his data though? I mean, uh, so far, I. I uh, at least with his monkey cloning, uh, it's been pretty solid, right? Uh, there's been reproducibility. Yeah, yeah, I think for whatever reason, people are, are more kind of um, 
at least uh, the people I'm talking to are, are more inclined to to really believe that the Metalopov Labs, you know, um, human therapeutic cloning work is genuine, and and you know they they all were perhaps just in too much of a rush, and there was a little bit of sloppiness there. But I think for whatever reason here with the staff stuff, I think people are are really taking the the image stuff, uh, <coughs> excuse me, a lot more seriously, and. Um, yeah, I think the other issue is that they have this other 2011 paper, Obakata and Vacanti, and there's definitely a lot of, of image duplication in there as well. And so that, that makes people see sort of like a pattern. You know, I know it's only like an N of two, but when you start seeing um, you know, image duplications repeatedly, you start getting concerned. Yeah, that that's not good. You know, I mean, like, you, you never want to have to see, have an N of two of, of duplications in your, you know, in your, in your publications. I just feel that, um, like, like you said, uh, this, when this paper hit and came out, people were going to look for any reason, um, to, to discount it. And, and that, whether the duplication was an accident or not, it just, it just gives everyone that well there it is you know huh? all right there it is and and so look i i think i i said it last time and i, and I think paul i think i read this on on your blog is that I, I hope it's real i really do because it if it is real and it is reprodu- reproducible it would be a tremendous advance quite um, elegant it would be so elegant it would be <laughs> it would be an um, but like we said earlier, the jury's still out, and we'll have to see how this plays out. And I'm sure you know everybody out there. You can follow it along uh, at Paul's blog, and he'll he'll be keeping up to date on all the late the latest and breaking news with with this cell uh, situation. If you have, uh, I love that we have situations in stem cell research, but yeah. <laughs> the stem cell situation. So with that, Paul, for the last little bit, I, I would love to just kind of transition to your book because. Anyone that really can write a book, I, I, I applaud that because I can imagine the work that goes in. So tell everybody, you know, what was your impetus for writing the book? And, and just give a little synopsis about the book. If people are interested, they can go out and pick it up. Sure, yeah. So I, I've always been um, really interested in writing. And, and in fact, I was actually an English major as an undergrad. I, I was sort of uh, on the fence between pre-med and, and English. So, um and then, you know, as soon as I got my BA in English, I, I uh, ever since have focused on science. But um, so I, I've always really loved writing, and and I just had this this idea, you know, I, I'm putting all this time and energy into the blog, you know, maybe I should uh, devote uh, some of that stream of writing towards an actual book. And then, um, so I had sort of been doing some writing, and then uh, um, a commissioning editor for a publisher approached me and said, you know, hey, we've seen your blog and and it just kind of snowballed from there, and they were, uh, you know, really excited to uh, publish this book. And and the book, you know, the intent of the book is really to to bring stem cells to a much larger audience, and um, and and at the same time, really challenge people to think about stem cells. So um, there's an interesting book out there by Larry Goldstein, Stem Cells for Dummies. Um, that I think has uh, definitely resonated with a lot of people, and and I think my book is sort of um, you know, a little bit more challenging version of that um, that kind of brings in um, also a lot of opinions and, um, and and just really sort of throws people, if you will, into the pool of the stem cell world 
uh, all the good stuff, the bad stuff, all the stuff in between. And, and so um, that's kind of why I said, you know, it's an insider's guide because I wanted to bring people uh, kind of behind the scenes and, and kind of give them a, a window into, you know, what's really going on in the stem cell world. And, and it's, um, the book has really gotten some good reviews uh, from, um, from some different uh, web reviewers. And, and so um, I'm really excited about it, and I hope people will check it out. What's the name of it again? So it's called Stem Cells and Insider's Guide. Okay, and uh, stem, we're, stem, we're, stem, you can find that on Amazon, I'm sure. Yeah, so it's Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and the publisher has it up on their site, too, and sometimes has a good deal on it. And we also have an ebook version, which is kind of handy because there must be hundreds of links that I've gotten in there to different web pages, and so that's kind of cool for people if they... You know, on, on page 96, they see something they like. You know, there might be a link they can click on it and go directly on the web to a certain web page that kind of, you know, brings them more of the story. Awesome. Um, and so I think, Yos, I don't think we're going to be able to let Paul get away without sharing a funny story. You know, we do this with our guests. We, we uh, have them provide us with a, a funny story, you know, we, we, we have a, a lot of younger following, grad students, postdocs, and so you know this, Paul, there seems sometimes where you're just banging your head against the wall and uh, you're just completely frustrated with your work, and so we like to bring them a little bit of humor and say that with every kind of, with every knock your head that you have there, there's, there's a light at the end and there's always something good, so we, we like to bring up funny stories, so if you wouldn't mind... Uh, would you like to share with us? So it doesn't necessarily have to be from your training, but some along your career, uh, a, a humor, a humorous story for us. Sure. Yeah, I'm hoping actually to squeeze in two of them. So I'll, I'll be kind of quick. So the first one is back when I was a grad student at UC San Diego down in La Jolla. Um, I was in a pretty intense lab with a mentor whose name is Mark Camps, and we were studying uh, transcription factors in childhood leukemia, and, and it was the kind of lab that really runs, you know, 24/7. And, and so I was in on a Saturday, and I had worked all day, and everyone else was gone, and, and I was literally just, like, washing my hands to head home, you know, to kind of salvage something fun on, you know, Saturday night. And I broke the faucet off of the sink. It was, like, this cheap plastic faucet. I don't know why UC San Diego did that. And right as I was, like, shutting it off, literally, to go out to my car to go home, it snapped off. And this, like, 12-foot geyser shot up and, and hit the ceiling and, you know, it was immediately, like, starting to flood the lab. Oh. I, looked under, I looked under the sink. There was, like, no shut-off valve or oh. anything. Oh, no. man. And so I'm, like, scrambling around the lab. Like, what do I do? I, you know, I'm sort of, like, in this panic mode. And, and so I was, like, trying to pile stuff on top of this geyser to, like, you know, block it off. Uh, you know, I, I called the, you know, UC San Diego people, like, what do I do for a flood? And they said they send a janitor over or something like that. And so it took about 15 minutes, which is probably, like, the longest 15 minutes of my life for this, <laughs> this person to show up. And they went, like, behind some wall and turned it off. And during those 15 minutes, I had... I covered all the equipment in the lab. I had moved all the lab notebooks, like, up to the ceiling on these shelves, you know, because I was really worried people's lab notebooks might get soaked. Oh. And, and, you know, finally the guy turns the valve off, and there's, like, six inches of water on the floor in the entire lab, and there's water, like, pouring off the lab benches, like waterfalls. Oh, oh my man. Gosh. And, and I was just sort of, like, 
oh my gosh, what am I going to do? <laughs> and there was water flooding out the door into the hallway. <laughs> and um, this was in a really old building at UC San Diego, and there was water going into the next room under the wall. And so I, at that point, I had to make one of the hardest phone calls of my life. So I called my you know, doctoral advisor. I said, you know, oh no, Mark, you know, this is what happened. And he was amazingly understanding about it. He was, he was super cool about it. And he was actually most concerned about the lab notebooks and stuff like that. And, and so that, you know, all's well that kind of ends well. But, um, you know, I didn't get home till real late that night. And that certainly wasn't how I imagined uh, spending that Saturday. Uh, hours and hours cleaning up this big mess, but I'm imagining you like in a cartoon, like trying to put yeah. your hand over the, the the water to like you know defray it from going in the air, just kind of like Superman trying to yeah. stop. Tell me, that tell me, key. tell me, you used an ice bucket. I did, but, oh, but yes. the, the, the pressure was so hard it actually like shot the ice bucket up towards the ceiling <laughs> that's some serious water pressure and yeah i know i don't know what the deal was no like maybe coming from the colorado river or something but um so that was kind of disaster but you know life goes on and and it wasn't the end of the world and um so i don't know if i have time for another real yeah quick go ahead go ahead more uh more contemporary so a, a few months ago i think it was sometime last year um, I was going somewhere and I was in this elevator and this woman just out of nowhere came up to me and she said, she kind of pointed her finger in my face and she said, you're that stem cell guy. And I was just sort of like, what? You know, I'm, I'm the stem cell guy now. I had no idea <laughs> who this person was. And I was sort of re- regretting, you know, being a blogger at that point. Yeah. And, and so she proceeded to tell me the story. She said, you know, she's super excited about stem cells you know, all this, you know, all this bubbling excitement from her. And then she went on to be a little more specific, which started freaking me out because she said, you know, back where I'm from, and, and I won't say what country she was from, she said, we, you know, we get a dozen injections about once a year of stem cells. And it keeps us young, you know, it keeps, you know, kind of gives me this girlish glow, she said, and all this stuff. And then she said, you know, yeah, these sheep stem cells, they're so amazing. Oh. get 12 injections of sheep stem cells in my arm, in my bloodstream, you know, she was like pointing all over her body. And I was just thinking to myself, oh my God, she's getting, you know, she and her whole family and who knows who else are getting these. 12, you know, injections of sheep stem cells all over their body. And then, you know, the elevator door opens, and she's just about to head out, and she goes, keep up the good work. And and then she was gone before I could even say anything, and, and I was just sort of thinking to myself, that woman thinks, you know, that I'm doing that kind of uh, stem cell stuff. <laughs> you, was, she was serious, huh? Oh, she was yeah, no joke. She was, like, totally... Okay, like, what, wait, no, seriously, what country are they injecting sheep stem, stem cells? So I've actually, you know, because of my blog and I have a really wide international readership, um, I, get, I get to talk to a lot of people around the world about stem cells, which is a really cool thing. And it turns out this is going on in actually many countries. Um, and, 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 for example, it's not real common in Germany, but there are clinics there that offer this treatment. They call it fresh cell treatment um, because it's like from I don't know if it's like newborn sheep or you know fetal sheep or something um, but it's also really big in the Philippines and some other countries um, and, and so she was dead serious she was wow. she was the biggest stem you, cell fan but it wasn't 
you know, wasn't like the, the kind of stem cell treatments Paul? or their therapies we think about. <laughs> oh, Paul, you, you just blew my mind. Thank you. Yeah, that was you were, amazing. You were probably just like, wait, no, no, and the door shut. You're like, oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I was sort of like, wait a minute. <laughs> No, that story is amazing on so many different levels, and I cannot believe that there are countries where people are injecting sheep stem cells. So wait, but Yosef, maybe it's not that bad. Oh, you couldn't help yourself. I just couldn't couldn't. help yourself. Uh, All right, well, listen, let's 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 close it there, Paul. Thank you so much for coming coming on board. it's really great to, to have you. Like I said, reading reading all you know your blogs and your work for a while. And everybody out there, if you haven't gone, gone you definitely need to go www.ipsl.com for the blog. It's it'll keep you up to date on everything going on in the stem cells. So if you if you read that and then you couple that with the stem cell podcast, I think Joseph, I think you'd be pretty well uh, educated here on stem cells. But thank you again, Paul. Appreciate it. Well, thank you. It was a lot of fun. All right. Take care now. Thanks. All right, bye-bye. Thanks a lot. So, uh, Chris, uh, on that note, uh, the whole sheep oh, stem cells, man. wow, that that just blew my mind, seriously. Oh. I did not know that was happening. So, um, <laughs> I can't even, I can't even believe that. I definitely, uh, someone I, came to you, Yosef, and they were like, listen, I got these stem cells from sheep, I mean, you know, and, and if you put they're going to, they're going to just rejuvenate you. I mean, that's where it's at. You need so many sheep cells. You are know, you doing that? I, I mean, like, what are we? I don't know. I, I have friends who've uh, gotten placenta pills from like their birth, you know, of their baby. So, uh, they got the pills made from the placenta. So, uh, there's all sorts of, therapies quote unquote out there that people subscribe wow. to so um awesome yeah on that note <laughs> out of all the rants that i uh gave you before what do you think we should end off with tonight oh man so you also gave me a bunch of topics and i and i don't know which one to pick you you mentioned the cost of ice buckets which drives me insane but yeah I, yeah I, mean, I think we I could... we should just explain to how people how much an ice bucket costs go that, ahead you that, tell them yeah. Go ahead. It's somewhere between two fifty and three fifty for a nice. Okay, bucket. so for everyone out there, if you guys, a lot of our listeners are probably in the lab. You know these little? They're like what? They're like foam. The hell yeah, are they? Yeah, it's like a thick rubbery foam that you wouldn't think costs more than fifty bucks. Okay, they're like a little cheap rubbery foam round thing. Okay, I could probably, you know, you could probably get it in Walmart for like five bucks. These things are like two hundred and fifty bucks. <laughs> yeah. When I when I was in the, you know, when I'm starting up my lab, I had to buy. You know, you get all the big equipment done, you know, like PCRs and stuff, and you get to little things, right? So I'm like, ah, oh, we get to ice buckets. Yeah. I'm like four grand out. Oh, what the <laughs> hell's going on? I they, freaking ice bucket. They nickel and dime you on those. Oh, I, that's okay. crazy. It's insane. But you know what? You can get them in lots of different colors, right? You can get them in colors, different shapes. Uh, but come on, people. 250 for an ice bucket. We can't come up with anything else. Yeah, no, that's not good. That's uh, and not can good. I can I bring up another thing too? Because you brought this up to me, and we have time for this last piece. Yosef mentioned group texts. Okay, this this is not in the stem cell world, but this drives me insane. Uh, expe- you know, and I feel like I feel like some of my friends do it to me on purpose. They'll include me in like a group text, even though they really don't want to, just so they can blow my phone up. Like for like, they'll know I'm out to dinner, and they'll group text me, and all oh, my phone just keep blowing up, blowing up for like a hundred times I don't know how to take it off I just don't understand why the default setting is you get 
you receive texts from everybody on that string, even people you don't know. So you're getting texts from people you don't even know. It's, yeah, I get them as random numbers because there is no name on the contact. You know, and I'm like, who the hell is this person, it, and why are they texting me? And then I, I don't know how to shut it off. So <laughs> someone's got to tell me how to shut it off. You cannot get out of it. It's it's uh, so okay. You took one of my really good rants, and okay, all right, the, that's a double rant tonight. <laughs> we 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 gave a double rant. Sorry, I got hot in the group text. <laughs> I just I just had one, and it, it really really pisses me off. Okay, so on that note, let's. We should uh, probably go off. sign off here that before we a- start to get get a uh, little non. PG. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to episode 13. We'll catch you on the next one. Yos, man. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Talk to you later.